0: This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty.
1: See the USA in your Chevrolet. America is asking you Drive your Chevrolet through the USA. America's the greatest land of all.
0: When Chevrolet began its See the USA in your Chevrolet campaign in 1949, The writers of the now-iconic theme song probably didn't realize that when they entreated drivers to drive their Chevys through the Rockies way out west and by waving fields of wheat, that those who took them up on their recommendation might ultimately be doing environmental damage, even as they appreciated the fields and mountains they were coasting past. The idea of enjoying the scenery by driving through it is so woven into American culture that it's hard for many of us to imagine a better way to enjoy it. That's not by chance. Needless to say, car advertisers have a real interest in making driving seem like a superior way to do, well, pretty much everything. And if potential car buyers like to think of themselves as the kind of people who enjoy scenery or nature or whatever, it's really an advertiser's best interest to go with that. Today on Fordham Conversations, we are talking about one modern version of that classic advertising device, green consumerism. My guest in the studio today is Robin Anderson. Anderson's a professor of communication and media studies at Fordham, and she recently spoke as part of the national Focus the Nation conference about consumer culture, the environment, green marketing, and one term that I didn't really understand. Robin Anderson, welcome. Oh, it's great to be here, Nora. Now, Robin, let's start with a term that I have been hearing more and more lately. Uh, What
1: is greenwashing? Greenwashing is the attempt on part of manufacturers or corporate America or a, a corporate image of any sort of, to get a idea out in the public spheres that a company um, or manufacturer may be more green than it actually is. So instead of possibly doing something to make their manufacturing more environmentally friendly, what they've done is to make the public relations make their corporate vision look more environmentally friendly. So give me some examples and how they worked. Well, greenwashing would work. Let's take appliances, for example. Um, So many advertisements on the media celebrate nature with beautiful, fanciful images with very high production qualities and, and give us a sense through association that consumer culture that the products that we want to buy as consumers are really environmentally friendly that is to say they don't harm the environment in any way that the extraction of the materials needed or the unwanted byproducts of their manufacture shouldn't really bother us so 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 much of advertising takes nature as a hook because we know that we, we love nature and we understand also as consumers that we're having an impact and an influence on it. Um, so there's a desire for conservation there. So if a manufacturer can just associate a beautiful image with their product without changing their manufacturing style or their impact on the environment, then there are numerous examples out there of that. So I think
0: one thing that you talked about in one article that I read um, was, I, I believe it was KitchenAid talking about how their
1: designs, how their kitchen gadgets flowed from nature. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Exactly. Um, KitchenAid is the high-end line of uh, appliances from Whirlpool. And at the same time that Whirlpool uh, was being pressured by environmental groups to create appliances that were more eco-friendly, um, you know in this country we don't have the green freeze as you might say we don't have uh, appliances that are anywhere near as efficient or using alternative energy as as much as they do in Europe at the same time Whirlpool supplied parts for those green appliances for the European uh, market. And there was pressure here in the United States to have Whirlpool make some really more environmentally friendly appliances. Instead of doing that or, or working toward really new technologies for appliances, what Whirlpool, uh, particularly with their KitchenAid campaign, is do a series of very powerful ads that made that made the association with nature, one was a stove. We took a cooking lesson from Mother Nature. Another was um, the, the dishwasher that had the foamy inside looked like a waterfall. So these powerful visual associations are an attempt to associate positive uh, environmental practices in the mind of the consumer when actually the company wasn't doing anything.
0: So explain to me what the ads say with the, um, with the taking a cooking lesson from Mother Nature. Explain to me what would have happened in that ad.
1: The ad is actually very cleverly designed through a series of visual associations. On the stove that we're talking about, there's a circular element and it burns a very beautiful orange and then that circle morphs into the sun. Then there uh, is a souffle rising and the cactus opens. All of these visual associations make it seem as if our first world lifestyle and and it, it, all the ways that we create huge carbon footprints um, can coexist very easily with a pristine environment um the The cactus and the sun are viewed in this ad in in a desert a very pristine desert um, and the, the kind of visual, very persuasive rhetoric of advertisements kind of constantly positions us as consumers and the products of our society within a, a beautiful um, symbolic realm that takes the products really out of the consequence of their manufacturing, of, out of what's happening um, not only when, when we use it and use high energy consumption, appliances, but also everything about their manufacturer. Silent within these images and within our consumer culture also is the need to lessen our carbon footprints as the, uh, you know, large manufacturing society that we are.
0: So I think that's a pretty good explanation of how these ads work. Why do they work? They've been very successful in selling products. Why do we buy into them?
1: I think they express a value that is uh, very much part of, of consumer value, which is a reverence for nature and an understanding, again, that we have uh, real environmental issues that we need to address, that there's a need for conservation. Some of the beautiful animals that we see in nature, the, the settings um, – everything from forest to temperate zones. We understand that these landscapes are important for us and important for the um, wildlife that those habitats support. So they're speaking to us directly, and we accept that. It's very difficult for the consumer in this media environment to look behind those images to find out ways in which they really could make a difference to conservation efforts. The advertisements tell us, and indeed consumer culture, the attitude of consumer culture in general, is that that we need to look toward the sphere of consumption to solve our problems and a consumption that's really driven by the beautiful advertising images. Um, What I tell my students when I think is really important is that we actually need to look behind the images to find the pathways, how we could make a difference, how we could change our consumption patterns, bring down our carbon footprints, and do what we need to protect the environment.
0: Now, I think one of the things that's really fundamental to these this kind of marketing is the idea that you can do good by buying stuff. What's wrong with that idea, in your view?
1: If we had a, a very one-to-one relationship between the messages of the, of the companies that sold products um, and their claim to being natural or environmentally friendly, um, we might be able to make our choices based on that about the world we would want. The problem is um, any consumer needs to do an em- enormous amount of research into the the company's vision and their practices um, so that they can purchase. And, and, and in that sense, we do have a lot of power as consumers. If, if we did that, we would make our purchases based on the type of world that we want. However, taking a broader picture of, of consumer culture and consumption, what we usually find is that The legislation that is needed and the actual social movement forward, the seeking of alternative energies, the creation of policies is usually in a realm that's outside of consumer culture. And the public needs to understand, by and large, that, that those kinds of discussions are what um, will, will help us find a pathway to protect the environment. We don't find those kinds of things in the ads. And oftentimes, since we're really talking about a need to do a lot, of, make a lot of changes, certainly transform our energy use, the the companies that dominate in the advertising realm now um, and the, the products that are out there, everything from cars to the oil companies, um, are very invested in the media through their advertising. And one thing that makes it very difficult for the public is to find alternative information on the mainstream media with regard to the policies we really need to transform our energy use.
0: You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Does your plant have a recycling program?
1: Recycling?
0: As we've been hearing on the show today, if you watch TV or look at a magazine these days, you might find yourself feeling like you're wrapped in the cozy embrace of Mother Earth rather than watching an ad for a kitchen range. But are the environmentally warm and fuzzy images that companies use to sell their products just that? Images? Do the companies that make our clothes, appliances, food, and cars really feel more like this? Oh, so Mother Nature needs a favor. Well, maybe she should have thought of that when she was besetting us with droughts and floods and poison monkeys. Nature started the fight for survival, and now she wants to quit because she's losing, well, I say, hard cheese. Okay, chances are that the views of the major American corporate CEOs on environmental degradation are at the very least somewhat more nuanced than those of Mr. Burns in that clip from The Simpsons. But the fact is, for the most part, they're in it to sell stuff to us, consumers. That's how it works, right? I asked Robin Anderson about that. Let me ask you a very basic question. What when you keep referring to consumer culture, and I think that's, you know, basically gives most of us sort of a vague idea of, you know, buying stuff, going shopping and stuff. But what do you mean when you say consumer culture? And also in your
1: analysis, what is wrong with it in terms of the environment? Well, one of the aspects of consumer culture is that, you know, you're not only talking about the advertising, but you're talking about the the marketing behind the scenes, the large media buys. But you're also talking about a landscape of popular and media culture that has been closely tied and is now very much embedded within... Manufacturing and sales because of the penetration of advertising within our programming, within the ethos of advertising that exists um, now within uh, movies that have product placement. Um, And, of course, the larger media conglomerates, which um, have been uh, really putting advertising uh, and embedding it closely not only within their business practices but within the media. So I I think this is one of the aspects of consumer culture from that structural position. It's not only the fact that we're making these Purchases um, that we're actually literally buying products, but that there are consequences at, at all levels to to thinking about ourselves as a democratic society because we have an array of goods to buy, or thinking about ourselves as activists because we've gone after uh, and we really like a, a social causal advertising, so we take an action. So it's so a, it's as an, it's consumers a rather than citizens. Exactly, what a lot of. Um, uh, those in the public interest at foundations talk about that we've created a passive public because if we Put our finger on the problem where well, we know we've got a, a global warming problem. Can we find the solution to that in, in the purchases, in buying a diesel, advertised, diesel clothes where the advertisement depicts global warming? And if we think, well, if they're concerned with that, maybe if I buy that, that indicates that I, too, am concerned with that. And we may think that people aren't that, that silly, but by and large, we find that, that people look for the solutions in the wrong areas of our society. So
0: you talk a lot about um, a few kinds of ads or a few specific ads that seem to be especially into the whole green marketing, and I guess not green marketing, but sort of marketing of nature idea. Um, tell me about a few of these. You talk about KitchenAid and Whirlpool and SUVs, cosmetics, bottled
1: water. Why, what, are these, what are these companies doing to sell their products? Well, Nora, a huge example is bottled water. Nowhere has the ads been uh, more beautiful and and tied to issues of health, activity, athletics, pristine images of nature and spring water. And bottled water is one of the huge issues uh, for for the environment at this point. We, We couldn't have been selling bottled water to this extent had had they not produced about 25 years ago a particular plastic bottle um, that allowed them to sell individual containers of water. And those individual containers now, um, we, we don't recycle. We only cycle a small fraction of them. But when we incinerate them, which is by and large in this country, how we get rid of plastic, we not only pollute the air, but we leave an ash that then um, is disposed of and enters into the groundwater, which makes our own drinking water more problematic. So you, we've got these kinds of cycles going on. But everything about bottled water is a fascinating topic for consumer culture. The industry makes more more profit on bottled water than they do on making sodas. Um, it takes emphasis away from municipalities um, or states from providing what is really needed for human existence, you know, water. And now when we actually go places, it's actually hard to find um, water in a tap and things like that. So we've moved, we've had this huge kind of movement in the last couple of decades toward a privatized idea of water. Most consumers don't know they see the beautiful advertisements, and they don't know that bottled water, over 50% of it is simply tap water that's been filtered or reprocessed in some way and then sold back, particularly the ones sold by Coca-Cola. And aren't the uh, standards for bottled water actually lower than the ones for tap water? They are, as tap water has very high standards. And we're in New York, we're very fortunate to have the kind of water system we have. I come from Southern California where the water was kind of recycled and I felt like I was drinking chlorine a lot. But in areas, uh, we really should look at what, what kind of water is available to us. Um, but the plastic now around and the carbon footprint of plastic and the recycling of those bottles is a huge issue in, in uh, consumer activism.
0: One of the things that you talk about, and this sort of applies to the, um, the water ads as well as a bunch of these others, is the idea of sentimentalizing Mother Nature. Tell me about that, and tell me about where that came from.
1: Right, well, to look at some of the advertisements, you can take them right back to Victorian literature around issues of the beloved. And a lot of thinking on the part of environmentalists taps into these ideas as well. This is the syndrome where I call putting nature up on a pedestal. And if you've got you know women or nature or anything up on a pedestal, you kind of revere it and uh, and you look up to it. But you don't know a lot about it. Any, the beloved in literature is a, a person who's kind of a, a mythic person who doesn't have the full range of human characteristics. Um, and if you put nature up on a pedestal and say, well, we have to preserve it in a certain way. What we don't understand is the full aspects of nature. A lot of the advertising that I see has these elements of of nature on the pedestal or or as the beloved, because there's a lot of social communication in advertisement. It teaches us how we should think and feel about nature a lot. And, um, if we think that nature is is perfect and um, that we shouldn't touch it or it should be worshipped, then we don't know how we're going to be involved with it. And it can't have a mind of its own. We've got to eventually tame it if it does something that we don't like. Speaking of uh, taming nature, you had mentioned that um, ads that are directed
0: at women, uh, like for KitchenAid, And ads that are directed at men are, like SUVs, are are quite different in the ways that they portray nature. Tell me about
1: that. Well, there's a lot of gender um, in advertising, and there certainly are a lot of gender categories in the way that nature is portrayed in ads. Uh, One SUV ad that I remember was... Snow being thrown at you and thrown at the consumer and saying she will freeze you, um, she will harm you, she will um, do this to you. And you get into your SUV, turn turn the key on, and you you know you trample over. You can you can go through the snow, but so many SUVs advertisements that we've lived through for so long now show, you know, dirt flying out of the uh, un- from under the tires or going over terrain where there's no road. And this is really a quite 19th century, again, uh, model of dominating nature. Um, nature is that which needs to be tamed. And it's also a threat. And A lot of the idea of threat and dominating nature you can find in a very kind of masculine discourse around nature. Many of the early SUVs ads, when they targeted a male audience, used that. Later, when SUVs became more popular and they were getting a larger part of the market and really wanted to target the female market, SUVs became the protector from a very gendered woman's point of view. So... You weren't really using the SUV to to dominate nature, but it was protecting women from nature and and the rain and uh, taking care of their children. And either way, nature was a threat, but the activities to be carried out were were a little bit different. Oh, it's not nice to fool
0: Mother Nature. This is Boredom Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. This morning at 7.30, it's Cityscape with George Bodarchy. On this week's show, Mel Brooks and Mary Higgins Clark talk about their families' journeys through Ellis Island. On Fordham Conversations this morning, we are talking about the environment and consumer culture. My guest is Robin Anderson. Anderson's a media analyst, and she is the director of Fordham's Peace and Justice Studies program. I asked her about a series of ads that have been, to say the least, somewhat controversial. Diesel
1: Jean's Global Warming Ready campaign. The global warming campaign that Diesel did... Um, showed some very striking images, Nora. They were uh, amazing, really. Oh, everything from tropical birds, toucans and things in St. Mark's Square, you know, in Venice, Mount Rushmore that was really turned into a lake and, and a couple lounging around, images of Sao Paulo underwater, London underwater, people in speedboats, you know, using their diesel uh, uh, Using it, but but portraying that everything would be okay as long as they looked good and were and were global warming ready, um, with their diesel clothing and accoutrements. Those Im- images are are interesting in that what these ad campaigns do is really create images that illustrate very profoundly some of the dangers that are out there for the environment and acknowledge global warming. And on the website, they actually had a link to. Um, some global warming, actual literature for global warming. But overall, what the campaign does is ask the consumer to just kind of look at those images and not do anything about it. You aren't given any pathways of what you might do, nor are you given any real information. What I do in the the talk for Focus a Nation, which was the largest national teach-in on global warming, was to look at what the, the advertisements and the incredible images were actually talking about, and we're talking really about uh, tropical birds in Saint Mark's Square. Well, tropical birds are actually will be uh, as a lot of biodiversity and a lot of animals will be lost if we if we have the type of uh, sea level rise that is being predicted, because they can't move their habitat zones. These are biological processes that are not understood or contained within the image. And so the juxtaposition of these powerful associations make people kind of stunned, but don't give them any information about how things actually work and what they can do to stop them.
0: One article in the Washington Post, which was in uh, February 2007, described this campaign with a paragraph that I thought was interesting. It says that global warming is being spoofed by a retailer in the pages of Vogue and Esquire suggests that the issue is sufficiently widespread and accepted to have reached the irony tipping point. I thought that was a great way of looking at it. Is that true about a lot of advertising? We just say, yeah, global warming's happening. It's a real shame, but let's push it away a little bit.
1: Right. Well, the irony tipping point. I think that irony uh, certainly has its place in our culture, and I think it's, it's a fascinating mode of discourse. You can't move to irony without a lot of public information about what they can actually do. You can't start making fun of something or push people to adopt a kind of distance, kind of knowing response to it if you don't know anything about it. So much of the larger aspects of media in consumer culture is that the waters have been very muddied um, about global warming. So that we we still believe in this country that there's a debate, that it's not a scientific consensus. Certainly there's debate about some of the computer models about how fast the temperature will go and what we can do about it. But at this point, um, there is a scientific consensus People need to know about that consensus. They need to know more about global warming. They need to know about the consequences. Before they see St. Mark's Square, Um, you know, Aqua Alta in Venice is a huge problem, and that's a a fantastic global museum city that may very well go under one of the first ones that now, uh, sadly, uh, having the effects of global warming. I don't think we can be ironic about that, before we we actually are made quite aware of it, and the ways in which we can take actions to stop it. Because the irony also has a tendency, without that information, to create a cynical public. Well, there's nothing I can do, so I know it's happening and and I'm hip, but I'm going to adopt this kind of hip, cynical stance, which is very much out there in the world of advertising. Don't do anything but be hip. So where does does tourism advertising fit in with all of this? Tourism advertising is fantastic because it presents to us um, an escape from the present world and the everyday of some of our urban realities, noise and lack of beautiful open spaces. And it gives the rest of the world, or certainly the tropics and other areas around the world, it presents them as these kind of pristine Paradises that we can escape to at least for certain moments, that too, if you think about the dynamics of that, separates in our mind the day to day environment that we live with from a very distant environment, so that we we don't think that working toward the environment is we're we're likely to think that that's something that's distant and we can't we, we can't do what we need to do at home um, to keep the environment intact. The problem with the advertising for the rest of the world in the tropics is it also tells us nothing about the impact of tourism, not only on those beautiful tropics that are very sensitive to um, overuse, but it also talks about um, a type of practice that entails an awful lot of travel. And one of the big industries that uses up enormous amounts of energy um, and has a huge carbon footprint is the travel industry.
0: Now, we've been talking today about some a trend that I think you would safely say that you find somewhat disturbing. Um, what do you think should be happening here what What would you recommend?
1: Well, I think that there's a lot of hope and a lot of challenges to the realization now that the globe is heating up due to our contemporary modern society and the practices and the energy energy use there. Understanding that and acting um, in ways that will alleviate that opens up all kinds of, of exciting possibilities to how we can do things differently um, and better in the future. Wind energy is something that's there. Wind turbines can supply enormous amounts of energy. So so cheap alternative fuels are readily available. And I think that if we move toward as a society, toward that and, and, and really put some resources into the continuing, looking also for solar, geothermal, wave energies, that we can actually fix the problem. We can also get out from under the yoke, if you will, of oil, peak oil, the, the incredible cost of oil, an industry that makes $40 billion a year last year while the rest of the economy is in dire straits. And making our economy and our practices not only better for the environment, but in a way that would redistribute the resources in our society a little bit better. And I think the transformation of the energy industry is one thing that's that's really in need of getting back into balance and restoration. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I also think that it can be quite empowering. There are Many websites that tell you, teach you about corporate practices, that show you corporations that have responded positively to campaigns to either um, better the environmental impact of their products, or certainly what goes along a lot with environmental impact is impact on the people who are making the products and labor issues. I think if we have an opportunity to make connections between the actual effects on the rest of the globe and and the rest of our international economy based on our actions as consumers, that moving toward that kind of realization can only be good for our society and a kind of consumer culture that's a very informed consumer culture. Uh, There is, you know, think about it, enormous power in being a consumer. We're the ones that support the activities of the economic practices on the globe. And if we we act in a very informed way, we can have a huge impact.
0: Well, Robin Anderson, thank you so much for
1: coming in. It was my pleasure to be here, Nora. Thanks.
0: From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. You can find more information about Focus the Nation at focusthenation.org. And if you have any comments or questions about the show, you can email us at portumconversations at wfuv.org. Portum Conversations is available as a podcast at wfuv.org, and it's in our studio archive, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.